0: One day, Elisha was passing through Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to have a meal. So whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for a meal. She said to her husband, look, I am sure that this man who regularly passes our way is a holy man of God. Let us make a small roof chamber with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when he came there, he went up to the chamber and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. He said to Gehazi, Say to her, since you have taken all this trouble for us, what may be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I live among my own people. He said, What then may be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood at the door. He said, At this season, in due time, you shall embrace a son. She replied, No, my lord, O man of God, do not deceive your servant. But the woman conceived and bore a son at that season, in due time, as Elisha had declared to her. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our teaching series this fall has been called The Neighbors' Table. We've spent this season discussing the art of neighboring, engagement with the community that we're a part of, and hopefully when we answer the question, who is our neighbor, our our answers are getting bigger and more inclusive. We're starting to reach the tail end of this series, but we still have a couple more ideas to explore, and the first one this week comes from this character of Elisha. And now, in the interest of alleviating confusion, we need to say that there are two characters in the Bible, very close to each other, that are often confused just because of the names that they're, that the way the names are pronounced. And so today, in the interest of alleviating this confusion, when I talk about Elijah, I'm going to use his Hebrew pronunciation, which is Eliyahu. And when I talk about Elisha, I will say Elisha. And so when we're talking about Elisha, this is a character that's introduced to us towards the end of the first book of Kings. Eliyahu, towards the end of his ministry, is asked by God to anoint and to appoint the next generation of royal and religious leaders. And Eliyahu at this time takes Elisha as his successor. Eliyahu has been the epitome Of what a prophet in Israel is and should be. So much so that in our Gospels, when we come forward to this time, Jesus and John the Baptizer are both confused for Eliyahu at various times. Eliyahu speaks for God to the people of Israel, he calls them back to their identity as a people of the one God. He has a dramatic contest with hundreds of pagan priests and emerges vindicated by God's direct action. Eliyahu hears the voice of God in the silence of Mount Horeb. He continually is critical of the Israelite leadership for both their pagan practices and for their economically unjust systems. Eliyahu, as I said, is the archetypal prophet. And just before Eliyahu is whisked away in a chariot of fire to the heavens, his disciple, Elisha, asks for a double portion of his spirit. And so this drive, this passion, this fire that drives Eliyahu indwells within Elisha as well. And Elisha carries forward this prophetic tradition. And in the fourth chapter, when we come to this chapter with Elisha, there are four seemingly unrelated narratives. But what we'll find is that there is a connection more than just Elisha being the protagonist in each of these narratives. The chapter opens with Elisha visiting a poor widow. This widow quickly tells Elisha of her dilemma. You see, when her husband, who was formerly a prophet, had died, he left some outstanding debt. She has no money to pay her creditors, and the creditors are soon coming to take away her sons to put them into slavery. The second narrative in this fourth chapter of 2 Kings is the passage that I began reading to you. But we're going to skip through, skip through that and get to it in just a moment. Immediately following the story of the wealthy woman, Elisha moves on to a place called Gilgal where he joins his company of prophets. It's said that there's a famine in the land, and so when Elisha sends his servants to make a stew for the prophets, they can't find any ingredients. They eventually find this unfamiliar gourd and collect a whole lot of this gourd and chop it up and put it in the stew, and when the people began to eat, begin to eat the stew, they find that it's poisoned. And finally, in the fourth story of this chapter, a man comes to Elisha with a gift for the prophets. He brings the prophets 20 loaves of bread. But as Elijah says to give it to the people, the people begin to declare that 20 loaves is not enough to feed the hundred men that are there. And so we return to this narrative of the Shunammites. Elisha visits this town called Shunem. Shunem is located at the foot of Mount Moreh to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And in this town, Elisha meets this woman who's described as alternatively wealthy or well-to-do or great. She urges this man, this prophet, to stay for a meal, and this becomes a constant practice on his subsequent visits through Shunem. This great woman finally decides to build for Elisha his own room, furnishing it with all that he needs. And as Elisha seeks to reward this woman for her hospitality, it's it's revealed that she has no son. And as God does throughout the Scripture, through Elisha, a promise is made that this woman will give birth, The woman does. And this is where we stopped our reading, but this is not where the narrative stops. As we read the narrative further, we find that while still a child, this boy passes away. And the woman's immediate reaction is to cry out and to seek again this prophet that gave her her this gift. So the prophet returns and like his rabbi before him, resurrects this boy from death. So there's a few points that I think we should note about this chapter. One that's particular to this woman, the Shunammite woman, and then one that's a little bit more universal with the way that these four stories within this chapter are connected. So this first point that I want to make is particular. I want to explore the character of this woman. As I said, the different translations call this woman wealthy or well-to-do. The Hebrew word can be translated as anything— As wealthy, well to do, great. It could even be translated as large, though that one is probably not it. What I believe makes this woman great is that she does exactly what's expected of her to do in the ancient Near East when a stranger is met. When you meet a stranger in this ancient world, you offer them respite, you offer them food, you offer them water, you offer them rest because this is a matter of life and death, as we've discussed before. This woman is full of vigor, full of life, and full of generosity, and her husband hardly even plays into the narrative. The woman, however, is described by Richard Nelson as a powerful and admirable character. Walter Brueggemann says of her that she is, for an instant, a more powerful character than even the prophet. When Elisha asks this woman what can be done for her, this woman is so great, maybe so humble, that her response is that nothing can be done. She needs no good words spoken to her, to the king. She needs no monetary reward. Her response is that she needs nothing. She offers hospitality because hospitality is what is required. But Elisha presses on and offers this son as a blessing. Our friend Wendy Holbrook is preaching in the sanctuary this morning. I talked to her this week about this passion about this passage and about our sermons and she told me about this phrase that has been floating around in her head all week. This phrase comes from the Hindu tradition and it says that the stranger is God. What is remarkable about this phrase to me is that this phrase could have easily come from our own tradition. It's in our sacred text that we find that the need for the care and the love and the compassion of the stranger is repeated over and over. And at least one story in our text, this stranger is seen to be the divine. This woman epitomizes hospitality to the stranger, the sojourner, the foreigner. And the stranger in this case turns out to be a messenger of the divine. The second point that I want to note about this chapter is a little bit more universal. What connects each of these four narratives within this fourth chapter is that each of them are narratives of scarcity. In the first, chapter of the, uh, first story of the chapter, the woman has no husband, no money, no food, and her sons are being taken away. Each of these is a statement of economic scarcity. In the story following our Shunammite woman, there's a famine in the land. The prophets have no money to feed themselves, and the situation gets so bad that they pick unfamiliar gourds and end up poisoning themselves. This too is a statement of economic scarcity. Even the story of our great woman is a a statement of economic scarcity. As social security in ancient Israel were your children, especially your sons, it was your sons that cared for you as you grew old. Couples with no children became a drag on the economy because somebody had to take care of them. Whether they're well to do now or wealthy now matters only so much as they grow older. These narratives of scarcity are significant for a few reasons. First, this chapter, while situated in the middle of the book of Kings, mentions no king. This chapter tells us what the people of Israel are experiencing with no mention of what the kings are actually up to. This chapter serves as somewhat of a people's history. These chapters force us to ask a question. If the people are starving and indebted and barren, what are the kings up to? The role of the monarchy in ancient Israel was explicitly to protect and preserve and serve the people within their land whether Jew or Gentile, according to the teachings of Torah. And yet, as what often happens with the government when we read the bookends to this chapter, we find that the kings instead are wrapped up in their own means, wrapped up in war, trying to fill their own coffers. Within this chapter, we find an implicit criticism of a monarchy that has no concern for its people. Another significant point about the narrative of scarcity is this. In none of these stories is the narrative of scarcity allowed to have the last word. This narrative of scarcity is a story that's told over and over and over within the pages of the Bible. And yet nowhere is the final condition, final word about the condition of our world, that of scarcity. In his book, God, Neighbor, Empire, Walter Brueggemann describes this narrative as it's set up in the book of Genesis. Pharaoh, in all of his wealth, becomes anxious that he might lose it. His anxiety leads him to accumulate more of the resources of his country, and this accumulation leads to scarcity for the people. Scarcity to the point where the people no longer have anything to eat and must sell themselves into slavery just to find food. And finally, when these people are enslaved, violence is done to them as the pharaoh has ideas of production and value that the people cannot meet. The role of the prophet we find over and over again within the Bible is to take a look at this narrative of scarcity and subvert it. The prophet takes this dominating narrative and says, instead, there is enough. In our first story, as the widow is about to lose her sons, the, pro- the prophet comes and says, there is enough. Take the jar of oil and pour. And as the woman pours and pours, she gains enough oil to pay, her back, pay back her debts, to keep her children, and to live freely. In the second story, when the woman has no son, the prophet instead says, there is enough. At this time next year, you'll hold a son. And when this son dies, the prophet comes back and says it again, there is enough. This boy will be raised from the dead. In the third story, when the prophets have no food and the stew that they scrounge up for themselves contains death, the prophet instead says there is enough. He sprinkles some flour into this poisonous stew, and all of a sudden it's fit to eat. And finally in the fourth story, as this gift of bread is not a big enough gift, the prophet says there is enough. The bread is distributed, and each person eats their fill with baskets of bread left over at the end. This should sound familiar to you. Jesus has had oil poured over his feet, and when it's said that this is a waste of a precious commodity, Jesus instead says there is enough. And when a boy dies in a city called Nain, at the foot of Mount Moray, To the west of the Sea of Galilee, if you remember where Shunem is, it's very close to this. Jesus says instead, There is enough, and this boy is resurrected. And when the disciples ask, What is two fish and five loaves of bread in the face of 5,000 men and countless women and children? Jesus says, There is enough. The food is distributed, and there is enough left over to fill up baskets. And the miracle here may have been a supernatural multiplication, but the miracle could have also been that those with bread shared it with those that didn't. There is enough. This is the voice of Jesus. This is the voice of the prophets in the face of this narrative of scarcity. We see a lot of narratives of scarcity in the world around us today. Whatever your news source is, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter, the dominating headlines and taglines that we see and we hear are often about scarcity. There's not enough food, there's not enough water, there's not enough money, there's not enough clothing, there's not enough jobs, there's not enough security. But the voice of Eliyahu and the voice of Elisha and the voice of Jesus say otherwise. The voice of these prophets say that there is enough. Now for us, sometimes we're called to be like the woman. Sometimes we offer hospitality because it's hospitality that's required. We offer food for the hungry and water for the thirsty and a bed for the traveler. And sometimes, like the woman, we cry out when we experience injustice as this great woman does when her son dies. We give voice to what we're experiencing when the narrative of scarcity dominates our own world. And sometimes we're called to be the prophet. Sometimes we declare that there is enough. We awaken the world around us to an alternative reality in which scarcity does not have the final word. One such prophetic voice here in San Antonio is from an organization that's called the Interfaith San Antonio Alliance. I'd like to invite Dr. Jack Reese up to tell us a little bit about this alliance. This is an alliance that is subverting the narrative of scarcity within our city. When we hear the words, there's not enough housing, this alliance says there is enough. Please do
1: tell us a little bit about your organization. About a month ago, uh, October 17th, a group of about 40 uh, clergy uh, in this city gathered at San Fernando Cathedral uh, downtown um, to say that we would be an organization of radical hospitality. This congregation represents significant faith groups in the city, Christian, Catholic, mainline, Protestant, conservative evangelical but also Jewish and Muslim and Sikh to stand together to say that we we will not just live by ourselves not just live with our own group not have eyes that are focused only on our own needs but we will we will see beyond what's going on in our lives especially in this day and time in a in a period of time in our nation and in the world in which people are isolating themselves and polarizing themselves from, from one another. That Christians and Jews and Muslims and Sikhs in this city can share what they can share in common with one another. And that group gathered together, including two of the pastors of this church, David Mcnitzie and Diana Shelley, to say that this church, Alamo Heights, New Heights, will be a center of hospitality in this city. And the focus of this organization, the Interface San Antonio Alliance, as we have gathered together our, our initial conversations to say that, that the project we will tackle first is homelessness and affordable housing, Because there are too many people in this city that do not have enough. There is just too much scarcity. We are not asking anything of this organization, of this this church. It's not like we've come asking for money today, though if you have a check, I'd be willing to figure out something to do with it. But simply to say that this church is saying to the community, we will have eyes to see. That we will not treat homeless and the poor as simply other, those people out there, those people that, that, that hassle us when we go downtown, you know, those people. That we will see them face to face, and that we will see them as humans. A friend of mine several years ago who was called to, to minister to the homeless in another city said that the first thing that I did was to go and sit at the corner with some of the homeless and ask them the question, what do you need? And their first response was to say, no one has ever asked us that before. Of all the efforts to give to the homeless, we all assume that we know what they need. We, we can give them you know, some money, we can give them some food, surely that's what they need. No one had ever asked them, what do they need? They said, first of all, we need you to know our name. And the greatest thing you could provide us right now is an internet. Well, no one had ever asked them what they need, but what they needed was connections to their family. They needed an internet so that they could send emails to their family. The homeless needed email. No one had ever asked them. And so... What we're asking this community and and communities of faith all through the city is that over the coming months and years that we will be committed to seeing those who are different than we, different by faith, different by ethnicity, different by religious commitment, different by wealth or lack thereof, that we will see them. We will see them as humans, gifted by God. We will know their names, and we will know what they need. I'm going to ask that you you stand, and we're going to say a prayer uh, together. This is a prayer that was uh, adapted by uh, Rabbi Samuel Stahl, uh, my dear friend and a wonderful leader of this city, uh, the longtime uh, rabbi uh, at uh, the Temple Bethel, now the rabbi emeritus. And if you would say this prayer with me as we commit ourselves to being God's people in this community Dear God, we are so grateful that we have a home, that we have a place in which to eat, bathe, rest, and love. We cannot imagine the chaos of living without one. Home is where the heart is. If we lose our home, we lose our heart. For home and heart are bound together. For losing a home is like losing one's heart or having one's heart ripped out. And whose heart has not healed faster by being in the right home. Oh God, we ache for our brothers and sisters made in your image who lack homes. They live on the street and eat out of garbage cans. For living this wretched life, we have blamed and mocked them. We do not know their names. We call them homeless. We do not know what has impoverished them. In fact, we do not know them at all. We have only seen them sleeping in doorways, wandering aimlessly, staring up at us with hollow eyes. O God, fire us with zeal and passion to combat this blight of homelessness. Fill us with your compassion, O God, so that you may use us to better the lives of those who suffer lives and dignities without shelter. Stir us to assure a home for them so that their hearts and bodies find comfort and rest. Enable us to labor zealously so that no one will ever be known by the name Homeless Again. Amen.